Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 134, where in a moment we look at capital investment bonds. But please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programmes to date, we featured loads of stuff. Mortgages, investing, wills and powers of attorney, and heaps more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last time we looked at buying property abroad with guest expert Paul Cherry of Shersun. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get us there. Like I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And then that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis. Joining me this week in place of our usual host, Phil Anderson, is Phil's colleague, Andrew Schooler. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Okay, so this week we're looking at bond, capital investment bond. Uh, what exactly? <laughs> what exactly is one of those? Okay, so capital investment bonds is a, a basically a form of investment that we as financial advisors can use. It's a slightly different type of investment because it's an insurance-backed investment. So I'll I'll give you the the definitive or what HMRC refer to as a as a capital investment bond. So this is in their insurance policy taxation manual. So generally, a unit-linked single premium whole-of-life endowment policy providing minimal guaranteed death benefits and often capable of surrender without penalty, particularly later in the term, an investment rather than insurance in general sense. That, that, that's basically what they are saying uh, investment bond is. But how I refer to it is it's an investment product that has specific tax benefits that is ideal for somebody who's looking at investing a lump sum into the plan. Okay. How, how do they work exactly then? Okay, so basically, um, like any other investment, it, it needs to be assessed before it's deemed appropriate for a client. So a client would approach a financial advisor, say, well, these are my objectives, this is what I'm looking at doing. But like any type of investment, it, it's basically another tax wrapper that we can use as financial advisors. So it really is as straightforward as if we deem it to be appropriate for a client, a lump sum is paid into an investment bond and set up like an ISA would do, like a general investment account would do as well. So yeah, it, it works in a very similar way, but there are very specific differences between likes of a capital investment bond and an ISA or a general investment account. Okay, so just to, to clarify, when you set one of these up, is it set up with the views of sort of paying an amount monthly or annually or both? Yeah, yeah, there can be a lot of different reasons to set up a capital investment bond. One can be purely for capital growth. You know, so a client could say, Well, I've got money to invest. I really don't see myself accessing it for the next 10 plus years. I want to put it in a product and leave it to grow. Or we've got other clients that'll say, Well, I want to take as tax efficient an income as as I can from my lump sum. So they could have been made redundant. They could have inherited some money, you know, however they've come about their wealth, you can then use a capital investment bond potentially to generate a tax efficient income, you know, even a tax free income if we're working on 
specific rules. But yeah, so it isn't, it isn't one or the other. It can do both if you want. Okay, let's get on to the, the subject of tax there, because you said we could maybe even make it tax-free, depending on... So are, are capital investment bonds taxable, first of all? Potentially. That, that, that's that's the classic financial advisor phrase when anybody <laughs> asks a question. Potentially, Perhaps, circumstances. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. So there are specific rules around investment bonds, and that's probably the best thing that we, we speak about just now before we then go on to taxation. So there is a rule because it's classified as as an insurance-based product. You have a rule that you're allowed to take 5% of the initial capital investment out each year of holding the, um, the bond without taxation. So irrespective of your personal income tax uh, situation, if you had £100,000 invested in a bond, you could then have a income in inverted commas or a withdrawal of £5,000 from that capital and you wouldn't be taxed on that. Now, where tax can apply and it's income tax that's liable on a, a, a capital investment bond is if you're then withdrawing more than the 5% rule. Then it's called a chargeable event. There's a lot of calculations that are need to be that need to be done to determine are you going to pay tax. Um, but very basically, a basic rate taxpayer or somebody who's not in a higher rate taxpayer, there there shouldn't be massive amounts of tax to be paid on a encashment. But it is a very specific calculation that's done. And if you ever want to see a financial advisor sweat get them to do that calculation <laughs> in front of you because <laughs> it, it's it's sit down with a calculator and work out all the facts and figures before a top slicing calculation is then done but it's complicated but if a large gain has been made and it's encashed normally within 10 years there may be tax to be paid but okay. it's on the gains rather than on the total amount so it, it's like anything you've made money on it there's tax to be paid. Yeah, yeah too, seems too good to be true. Then, then there's going to be money to be paid. Okay, just but, to, yeah. But I was going to say, but if you stay within the rules of the scheme, then you, there shouldn't be any tax to be paid. So it, it it's just again, this is where having a financial advisor to talk through it all with you is really important. Yeah, absolutely. So many people can get caught out. Just on, on, on very broad, basic terms, if you were saying, right, okay, you've got this amount of money coming in, we're going to put some to your pension, we're going to put some to this, we're going to put some to that, we're going to put some... Where would investment bonds sit in your sort of list of recommendations? So if you were going to use financial vehicles to make money work for somebody, where yeah. would they sit in, in, in your... How far down that list would, would they come and what would the list say from sort of top to bottom? Well, well, interestingly, they're actually moving up the the order of uh, preference uh, because of some rules that have changed, you know, as of this tax year that we're in uh, just okay. now, 2023, 2024. So basically, the, the main reason why we're looking at investment bonds a little bit more is capital gains tax has reduced from £12,300 per person down to £6,000 and then it's going to be moving down to £3,000 in the 24-25 tax year. So, you know, general investment. So the hierarchy was always, if somebody needs access to money, ISA, general investment account, then probably bonds underneath. 
if they were saving for their retirement, pensions would be right up there as well. Now, bonds are becoming a bigger part of the conversation because if you're making a gain on a general investment account, then it's potentially going to be liable to capital gains tax. And especially if people have got capital gains tax liabilities elsewhere, sale of a second property, work of art, et cetera, that side of things, then potentially you know, a general investment account is going to be quite a taxable source for them. So coming in, you know, when people have got lump sums to invest, potentially um, there's a place for investment bonds to be sitting in there as well. I see. What sort of institutions offer these bonds, Andrew? Hmm. The vast majority of providers we use do a bond. Definitely not as many as an ISA or a general investment account, but we're going to start seeing more and more providers bringing in investment bonds into the markets. The biggest providers in the past have been like the Prudential. Prudential have done investment bonds forever and a day, but more and more providers out there are starting to realize, you know what, this is what our clients and advisors are looking for. So we need to get something. And whether that's through a third party, whether they're doing it themselves, fine. But yeah, we're seeing an increasing demand for investment bonds. And just to, to clarify, how accessible are capital investment bonds? Accessible as in how easy is it to invest money into a... a, a well, let, let's let's break it down and do both. Do both. <laughs> but what I was actually meaning was, let's say I want to pick up the phone and get money out of my bond tomorrow. Is that a problem? No, it's not a problem at all. Obviously, d- depending on the amount that you're taking out, then we need to have a conversation around potential tax liability. If you're over and above the 5% rule, we need to do a, a, a calculation. But again, it is... That's for the financial advisor to advise. But after that, depending on the provider, normally run about 10 working days and the money's back in your account. It's not tied up in the sense that a lot of bonds that you would get through a bank or term deposits, which are really, they're they're better term, they are locked up for a set period of time. This Mm. is still an accessible account. So if you do need to get money out, you can. You just need to be aware of the potential tax liability of doing that. Okay, and accessible in the term that you thought I meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, again, you know, through a financial advisor, not a problem at all. If a client's going directly to a provider, yeah, there'll be there'll be less options. But again, it, it's part of our suite of tax efficient wrappers that we use for clients' money. So funds are available then for this. Um, again, we're seeing it increasing. We're, um, you know, the, the likes of Prudential, the likes of Scottish Widows, invariably in the past, has been their own funds that you can invest money in. So you were quite limited to a kind of um, their own funds, effectively. So you might have about 20 or so different funds that you had access to. But now they're appearing on platforms. And what I mean by platform is basically where... Um, a financial advisor, an individual can invest money in any way they see fit. So any fund that we can use for a pension, ISA, general investment account, should hopefully then become available for the bonds as well. So from our point of view, as a, uh, or my point of view as an advisor, I'm, I'm then not limited to my investment choices for, for an investment bond that can be set up in any way that we see fit. And when I say who are they suitable for, I'm thinking here, you know, sometimes we'll talk about things that are uh, useful to anybody. Other times we talk about maybe if you are more affluent or if you have more disposable income, let's say, which would this suit? 
So I would normally say we're looking for clients who are investing a lump sum. So rather than somebody that's looking at accruing money over a term. So rather than somebody that's paying in £500 a month into a plan, we're kind of really more looking at somebody who has £50,000, £100,000, £250,000. You know, it's it's that kind of client. Now, the, the client that's really going to be using these are potentially somebody that's used up all their allowances elsewhere, pension, ISA side of things. They're potentially looking at generating a tax-efficient income as well. So again, as an advisor, I sit down with a client, I'm looking at where money is already set up, we're then looking at the most tax-efficient way of giving them an income uh, going forward. And an investment bond can be a really useful tool as well. It can be also useful for people that are looking to put plant, put money in trust. Now, that could be for inheritance tax purposes. It could be for care home planning in the future. And we'll come on to that in a little mm. bit more detail because there are very specific rules around that. But Normally, it's going to be towards the latter end of a client's investment career, if you can call it a career. Um, but it is going to be the kind of older client who's amassed money already, rather than a, a younger client who's looking to amass money. Okay, all right. I always ask Phil this: the sort of pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages, if you like. Yeah. So major advantage is the 5% rule under the, the bond. So the ability to withdraw funds, 5% of the capital value out each year. Now, bear in mind that rolls up as well. So if you don't use it in one year, rolls over onto next year, you've got 10%, rolls onto the next year, 15% oh, if okay, you haven't made good. any withdrawals. So it's not a use it or lose it type scenario. It, it rolls up. So that's one of the major advantages. I would say the major disadvantage with a bond is it's inflexible with any other tax wrapper. Whereas, you know, a general investment account, I can use that to feed an ISA or a pension each tax year. A general a, a bond is really designed for the money to stay there and it stays within that wrapper. So it's really its own little entity. It won't speak to any other investment easily, put it that way. You know, if you do want to take money out and put it into an ISA, yeah, you, you, it can be difficult to do that. I should have mentioned this earlier. Is there an upper limit that you can save in any given financial year? or Not at all, no. no. So you can put in as much as you like? Uh, absolutely. What about lower limits uh, to, to come in? You said something about, about somewhere in the region of 250000 is what you'd be looking for. Oh, I'd always look for two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, but it always quite work that way. No, you you tend to find there isn't a minimum, but you know some providers will put a minimum just because of the the additional work that's involved in an investment yeah. bond in the background. So you might see ten, fifteen thousand pounds, but again, if we're putting money into a bond at that kind of level, it isn't. That's not an issue. No, and even if it's in a general investment account, it's not an issue because capital gains tax is far greater than the amount that's being uh, invested. So I would normally be saying if we're looking at bonds, it's going to be in the upper end of the, the, the investment strategy rather than the lower end. Lower end still taken up by pensions, ISAs, and potentially a little bit into general investment account because I wouldn't then be concerned about capital gains tax on that is when we're looking at the two hundred, three hundred thousand pounds plus. That yeah, this should be part of the conversation. Okay, now you mentioned there are very specific rules 
for residential care. So let's let's get into that. How are these bonds assessed if someone does go into residential care? Okay, so there's there's very very specific wording in a thing called uh, CRAG. So it's the Charging and Residential Accommodation Guide. So it's put together by local authorities. So um, the official wording from there is, if an investment bond is written as one or more life insurance policies, then containing cash and rights by any way of options for total or partial surrender, the value of those rights have to be disregarded as a capital asset. So in English, if... So glad you did that. <laughs> so if if it's if a uh, if money's put into an investment bond, then it can't be used for assessment for care home planning because it's classified as an investment product. Uh... But but there is always a caveat, and there is always a caveat, and that's a thing called deliberate deprivation of assets. So Basically, if somebody does something with a specific view to reduce their asset value for that purpose, for care home planning, then the local authority can disregard that. Now, it, it's very difficult to determine what... Whether it, that was done, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, if somebody is fit and healthy and puts money into an investment bond, then pretty much you can quite comfortably say, you know what, that's fine. Um, there was a specific purpose. This was a tax-efficient wrapper that you're putting money into, you're fit and healthy, and you've got no expectations of going into care. Fine. If you know that you are going to be going into a care home imminently, and then all of a sudden you put all of your assets into an investment bond, more than likely, they will then still charge you. Um, but interestingly, then the bond can be used to help pay for the care home costs <laughs> through the five percent rule, taking out a tax efficient income from the from from the money. But yeah, that it it it's a fine line. Um, it's like giving away assets. It's like selling something below market value. You know, again, advice needs to be taken. It's not a golden bullet that can fix everything. It's a case of depending on circumstances it, it, it can be a very useful tool but needs to be done correctly yeah and look, i mean it's one of these things if you're 25 years old i have absolutely no history of residential care in your family line or anything of that nature and you're a fit and healthy specimen and you start something like this it's going to be difficult for anyone to prove otherwise when it, yeah. you know, yeah, okay. It's a sense, common sense rule, in other words. A hundred percent. And it's it's all around ensuring things are done in the correct way for a client. So, you know, yeah. Sure. Uh, do, do a pre-diagnosis is, is roughly what we're saying. And, and by some considerable amount of time, if you can possibly manage it that way. Absolutely. Are, are bonds better than ISIS then? They're different. <laughs> 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 that, that, that's probably the best way I can describe it ISAs are brilliant because they're tax free well they're, they're tax free for the individual they are liable to inheritance tax but that's a whole other conversation but for our clients still alive an ISA is a very accessible very flexible plan that you're limited to putting £20,000 at the moment into per tax year they serve a very different purpose to an investment bond an investment bond can easily be set up in trusts if that's something your client wants to do. 
generating a tax-efficient income. I would normally say in investment advisors in general should be more looked on as the, yeah, it's money invested, but it's still going to be accessible. If I need to dip into it, I can get out. And you shouldn't have one or the other. It's a case of both have a very specific role within financial planning. So saying is one better than other, no, neither is better than others. They're different. They serve different purposes. It's like, what's better, an apple or an orange? Yeah. I'm going to guess, though, perhaps traditionally, by the way that someone comes into money as they possibly get older, the ICEs would be seen as something that you would buy into, that you would invest in when you're younger, and capital investment bonds tend to be the prevail traditionally of the older person. Is that a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a very valid point. You know, the great thing about ISAs is they're very easy to save into on a regular basis, and you know, pr- predominantly, you know, if somebody's looking at saving money and they want still want to access it before retirement age, ISAs a starting point. And we can put a lot of money per month into an ISA. We've got twenty thousand pounds. Yeah, we, we can put into an ISA in each tax year. So. And if our clients saving regularly, yeah, absolutely, that's our starting point. Is is the ISA route? If a client has a lump sum, yeah, absolutely, we'll maximise ISAs as much as we can. But you know, we can only do so much there, and then it comes down to what their objectives for that money is going forward. Okay, where should people go to find out more about investment options, Andrew? Yeah, you know, the best place, independent financial advisor, is a great place to start. Somebody like myself, get in contact with us. We can then go through a health check with a client and determine what their objectives are and then put together a robust plan. You know, there are thousands of independent financial advisors throughout the UK. You know, finding one that's close to you. Unbiased is a good website to start off with if you're not coming to us directly. So okay. it's a bit over. <laughs> right. Now, uh, Phil is really keen on trying to help you with your query. So if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if you prefer. Let's get on to this week's contact details coming up in a minute. I'll give it to you after these. Okay, Andrew, in Phil's absence, both these queries falling to you. The first is from Mary, a school teacher in Ayrshire. Mary says, I've come into a bit of money and I want to stress up front, this has nothing to do with any salary increases. <laughs> there are not teachers I work with who are rolling in cash and neither am I. But through family, I've come into a sum of around £10,000 recently, and I wanted to know the best way to utilise it. I'm not one of life's great gamblers, so I won't be investing in the markets in any way. My own probably boring inclination was to add it to my pension fund for later life. But I don't know if I can put that much in at once, or whether I might be missing a trick in doing so. Do you have any advice? Well, it's quite specific, Andrew, I suppose. It is, yeah. But again, it, you know, like anybody in this scenario, we're looking at what are your objectives for the money? What access do you want? Depends on her age as well. If she's looking at putting into her pension, the money's gone until she retires. Now, yeah. that might not be an issue if she's 55 years old and then, you know, thinking about retirement at 60 because there's tax benefits of paying into a pension. And we've gone into that in previous episodes. So, you know, a pension could be an option. But what I would say is the hierarchy of what should I do with money? Do I have any borrowing first? Am I paying interest on loans, mortgages, etc.? So, again, if you don't need the money or you don't need access to the money in the near future, pay that off first. So if you're paying 20% on a credit card, get rid of that because you ain't going to get 20% interest on any investments or pensions. 
if there's no borrowing, then yeah, pension's a good option. Um, potentially, you can pay that into your uh, pension, whether it be the SPPA pension directly through buying additional years or through an ABC with likes of Prudential. The teacher's ABC is an option for clients. What they need to be very, very careful with, and this is very specific to public sector, is because there has been a pay rise, the, there is an issue with regards to pension input amounts. So the amount that a client can put into a pension in one tax year, that has gone up to £60,000. And there's probably a lot of teachers saying, well, I don't pay I don't pay anywhere near that amount. That's more than I earn. Yes, we understand that, but that's not how the pension input amount is calculated. It's an opening value. It's a closing value. There's an indexation factor that's put in and indexation factor is RPI, I think it's working at at the moment, so around 10%. And if you then throw in a pay rise in that period, then very, very easily they can be in a taxable position. So, yeah, complicated to say, can I put it into a pension? Potentially, again, classic financial advisor phrase. <laughs> but if they want, if, if they're not looking at taking any risk at all, and they still want access to the money. Well, you know, you've got things like premium bonds through NSI. You've got savings accounts with them. You've got cash ISAs. You're actually starting to see reasonable interest rates and cash-based savings accounts. So, again, all comes down to objectives for the money. Okay, I don't think Mary has a little voice in her head saying Vegas, Vegas. But I could, I could be wrong. <laughs> Next up, here's one from Christina Milochi who says, "Hi, Andrew. Uh, we own accommodation which we lease out all year round via Airbnb. A large percentage of that year, the accommodation is rented by skiers visiting the Cairngorm. I'm always terrified someone slips and falls, not in the slopes." but in our driveway or stairs to the accommodation, for example, do we require or would it be advisable to have any special form of insurance over and above the norm? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And I'll, I'll hold my hands up. Insurance isn't my area of expertise, but I did a little bit of digging and I had a look on Airbnb website. Now, you know, the kind of insurance that they're looking for is a liability insurance. So if something happens to somebody who's, who's renting the property, public liability is basically kind of the, the, what they're looking for. There, There's an article on Airbnb's website speaking about host liability insurance program, which from reading through it kind of ticks the boxes for what she's looking to, um, to, to provide. So in the event of uh, injury, there seems to be around a million, I think they've got it in dollars, a million dollars worth of protection or cover in place uh, if something were to happen. But also doing a, doing a quick Google search as well. There is a whole heap of different companies offering public liability insurance for Airbnb providers. So yeah, I, I'm not fully versed on what you get as being an Airbnb host as standard. I'm guessing this is an optional extra that you've got to pay additional fees for. As everything in life, there's a cost attached to mm. something. So my first point of contact would be speaking directly with Airbnb. Obviously, they're going to want to sell their own products. Um, so they'll be selling this um, host liability cover. But take the information that you get from Airbnb, do a compare the market type scenario so look for a very similar type of product that's available in the in the general market. Is it cheaper? Great. Okay. 
you know, that that might be a better option, but ensure you've got appropriate cover in place. I think the thing is as well is is knowing sometimes whether the product and offer is actually worthwhile or whether mm. it's just something they're going to try and lure you into so you pay an extra few quid a month. But it, it does sound like it's worthwhile at least. Yeah, and, and you know, it's the classic, cheapest isn't always best. And, yeah. you know, you pay for what you get at the end of the day. Yeah. But, you know, it, it looks like this is something that they've actually put a lot of thought into to provide cover. Uh, no way am I uh, recommending any products by specific providers, but it's a starting point to go down that that kind of investigation route or that research process anyway. Perfect. And we just say as well, before you get in touch with a question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a lot of topics so far and we may have touched on something you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thank you for joining us for episode 134 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And thank you also to our guest host, Andrew Schooler, filling in for Phil on this occasion. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson for Financial Services Online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn too. Or why not email Phil a question he can answer on a future show? His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question. And as I say, Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. And please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Listener.